And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The Gospel according to St. Luke, the second chapter, and the 21st verse. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, contrary to your order of service, I am not Deacon Zach Clemens, uh, much to everyone's regret, much to my own regret, um, but he is uh, out of town. We had to switch some days, got to mix up in the schedule. I'm afraid you'll have to deal with, um, with the, the JV today, so I apologize. Well, I um, would ask you, raise your hand if you've ever seen an infant baptism in this church. Very good. Over the past 10 years or so, I've seen quite a few of them each of them joyous, beautiful, and inevitably messy in their own special ways. Families and godparents gather together. Siblings look on expectantly. There's oil, water, candle, fire. Um, And most of the time at the baptism itself, there comes a scream from the sweet baby boy or girl when they come under not one, not two, but three splashes of cold water. We in the church receive the scream and the cries that usually follow, almost the way you would at a physical birth. We know it's a normal reaction, and it strangely brings a kind of relief. Just like at a birth, it signals that a child has been born. There's one moment, however, in particular from the baptism liturgy that my mind goes to this morning on this feast of our Lord's circumcision and holy name, It's a moment in the liturgy that actually predates and has been preserved by our prayer books when before the baptism, the celebrant looks to the sponsors and says, name this child, name this child. And in the liturgy, the naming um, almost seems to prompt the baptism. So the name is given, Anna Catherine, Mary, Joseph, Peter, Eric, Michael, Emily, Theodore, Lucy, Virgil, John, Charlotte. The name is given and the water is poured out. In a way that who the child is, as embodied by their name, becomes tied to their baptism. It's as if the child's name and the child's new identity as God's son or daughter is sealed by the baptism. This is why the first name is sometimes referred to as one's Christian name. For it is given to you at your christening. That is, when you were Christianed, made a Christian at your baptism. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, Solomon tells us in Proverbs. A good name is better than precious ointment, he says in Ecclesiastes. And today the church commemorates a name unlike any other name, a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, yes, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But this morning we'll also see that first, it's a name that came at a cost. Second, it's a name we've been baptized into. And third, it's a name we must never take in vain. It's a name that came at a cost. It's a name we've been baptized into. And it's a name we must never take in vain. Now, the record of our Lord's naming is uniquely preserved in the Gospel according to St. Luke, 
Not surprisingly, for as church tradition tells us, St. Luke is believed to have interviewed the Blessed Virgin St. Mary herself when compiling his orderly account, as he told Theophilus. And so whereas with St. Matthew's Gospel, where the Annunciation is made in a dream to St. Joseph, and Luke, we are given a precious window into the first Annunciation, the one made to St. Mary herself by the angel Gabriel, who utters those famous words, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, what's in the name? This is what Juliet famously asked Romeo from her balcony, right? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet, supposedly. Of course, those star-crossed lovers were trying to overcome the obstacle of their family's names in order to be together, right? And so Romeo responds, call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Well, that's very sweet. It's very sweet. But the fact of the matter, and the reason that play is a tragedy, is that names are deeply tied to the realities they represent, such that knowing the name of something gives one an important insight into the reality at play. In Exodus 33:18, when Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, or as we read it in most English Bibles, the Lord. Yahweh, the holy name treated with such respect and devotion and fear, that the tradition developed in, a Ju in Judaism of avoiding its utterance altogether except once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The wondrous name first revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, a name that almost vibrates with an otherworldly holiness, a transcendence reflected in the difficulty of giving it a precise translation. It's often given as, I am who I am, but it could also be, I am that I am, or even still further, I will be what I will be. However you slice it, the name tells us he is. He's the existing one, the living one. To such an extent that any other so-called gods are nothing compared to him. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God the Lord alone. When the Lord meets Moses on Sinai, as we heard in our Old Testament passage this morning, so wonderfully read by Miss Betsy. Thank you, Miss Betsy. Um, we heard in that passage that the Lord preaches his own name to Moses. Did you catch that? It's a proclamation that is also revelation, revealing the character of God that cannot be separated from his name. And so we read in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so God preaches his name. He preaches himself, you could say, to Moses. 
And the proclamation of himself, as it turns out, is good news for you and me. That the God who is the living God is merciful. He's gracious. He's not quick to anger. There were gods who were quick to anger. He's not quick to anger. He's slow to anger. And what does he abound in, this passage tells us? He abounds in a love that's steadfast and faithfulness. A love that remains steadfast for thousands. Demonstrated in the forgiveness of our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins. But who will not clear the guilty. He will not ignore injustice. He will not sweep sin under the rug. No, this is a God who keeps his covenants. This is his name. This is who he is. And it's a name that will come at a cost. The tremendous preacher, poet, and cleric of the Church of England, John Keeble, published an incredible volume of poetry in 1827 that should be on every Anglican shelf called The Christian Year. The Christian Year. <clears throat> it consists of poems written for each Sunday of the church calendar. And for this Sunday, the Feast of the Circumcision and Holy Name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father Keeble wrote this. Acknowledging that the feast fell on January 1, he writes, The year begins with thee, and thou beginst with woe, to let the world of sinners see that blood for sin must flow. The year begins with thee, and thou begins with woe. Of course, referring to his circumcision. Yes, on the eighth day, his pious parents brought Mary's firstborn to bear the sign of Israel's covenant in his own flesh. And it's at this moment that he is formally, ritually given the name. The name God had selected for his own son, announced by the angel, Jesus. Coming to us in English by way of Latin from the Greek, Jesus, from the Hebrew, Yeshua, meaning he will save or simply salvation. It's an abbreviation of the Hebrew for Joshua, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Such that the holy name Yahweh proclaimed to Moses on Sinai is gently tucked into the name of Jesus itself. Names which, like a sacrament, signal outwardly and visibly the grace given inwardly and spiritually, for God's Son signals that He is Yahweh Himself come to save. But again, it was a name that came at a cost. The eighth day of his incarnate life, the day of his circumcision, tied his name of salvation to the spilling of blood. It tied his name of salvation to the spilling of blood. Like sacrificial wine, Hebel writes, poured on a victim's head are those few precious drops of thine, now first to offering lead. Now, this covenant of circumcision, as you all know, was first made with Abraham. The same Abraham Jesus said in John 8, Rejoice to see Jesus' day, 
and went on to say to his scandalized followers, Before Abraham was, I am. And we can see in Genesis 17 that just as Jewish children were given their names at their circumcision, the first cutting of the covenant with the sign of circumcision also came with a new name for the circumcised. If you remember, Abraham's name had been Avram, meaning exalted father. But God named him Avraham, father of a multitude. From a man as good as dead, God gave him a name that promised his descendants would be like the stars of heaven, like the grains of sand by the seashore. But this name and this covenant also came at a cost, though the payment was not required at Abraham's hand. It's important to remember at this point, and I'm getting a little technical here, but hang with me, Covenants are not made, they are cut. That is the literal meaning of the Hebrew for make a covenant. It is to cut a covenant. Why? Well, because a covenant was made back in the day with the cutting up of animals for a sacrificial meal as a way of saying, among other things, let it be to me as to the sacrifice if the covenant is not upheld. In Genesis 15, when the Lord cut his everlasting covenant, with Abraham, and the sacrificial animals were laid out, it's very strange, because it seems like Yahweh alone walks between the offerings. He doesn't walk with Abraham. Well, what does that mean? It means that Yahweh, in effect, signed alone to the penalties of the covenant. He signed alone to it. He alone said, let it be to me as to the sacrifice if this covenant is not upheld. This covenant in Abraham's name came at a cost, but the price was not required at his hand. Rather, in Psalm 40, Jesus said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. On the eighth day of his life in the flesh, Yahweh himself submitted to the covenant that he had cut with Abraham, receiving the sign that, that brought those first drops of precious blood, the same blood by which Abraham's covenant would be upheld and fulfilled, and by which we receive the salvation that names him, Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh, is salvation. So the name we remember today is a name that came at a cost. It is also the name we are immersed into at our baptisms, as St. Peter said at Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A baptism that is accomplished by the Trinitarian formula we always hear at our baptisms, as our Lord taught us, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. For, of course, the Lord Jesus is the way by which we enter into the fellowship of the Trinity. We are reminded of this baptism into his name by the name we've been carrying with us since Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Christian. Christian. If you've been honored enough to receive the distinction of being baptized, you've been Christian. And you have a holy obligation 
to always remember and demonstrate the glory and blessedness of that holy name. For just as the Lord admonished Israel to circumcise their hearts and not just their bodies, we also must always say, we, we also must always set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We must honor Christ the Lord as holy, lest the name of God be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. Now, beloved, we treasure the names of our families, don't we? Most of us. As imperfect as those families often are. And perhaps not so much now, but there was once a time where a family's name was a badge of honor. We honored the sacrifices of our ancestors in carrying their name. It was the flag under which you built a reputation. And you either brought honor or shame to your family by the conduct of your life. If this is how we venerate the name of our earthly family, how much more should we be concerned with venerating the name of our heavenly family? Or say the love we have for our citizenship, for our country, patriotism, a good and natural affection. But as much as we love and defend the title of American, how much more should we defend the name of our heavenly citizenship, of being a Christian? Beloved, do we feel loyalty, even jealousy, for the church as we do for our country? Are we willing to celebrate our salvation with the fanfare, fireworks, and flags with which we celebrate our independence? Or if not the name of your family or your country, let the Spirit reveal His greatest rival for your heart, whether it's an alma mater, a profession, a political group, or dare I say it, a football team. Who is set apart in your heart as Lord this morning? Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third of the Ten Commandments the God of Israel entrusted to His people says this, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. To the baptized, you wear the name of Christ as a seal on your arm. You bring the name of Christ into everything you do and everything you say. Do not take it with you in vain. And while this commandment certainly has application beyond only what we say, let me be clear, it is just as certainly not less than about what we say. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If Christ does not quite have the lordship in our hearts as he ought, let us begin with the habits of our tongues. How do we speak of Christ and his church? How do we speak of other Christians who also bear the name of Christ? Before we speak, let us decide first whether we can actually improve upon the silence. Perhaps there is still something to be learned from the Hebrew hesitance to speak God's name at all. Rather, when we do speak his name, let's follow his own example to Moses on Sinai of preaching the name, proclaiming the name. When his name is mentioned, let the incredible meaning within it just enfold out of you that the living one, the eternal one, the creator God who keeps covenant, Yahweh, 
is also the salvation by which we remain in that covenant, Yeshua. Today we remember the name that came at a cost, the name into which we've been baptized, the name we must never take in vain, but rather hold forth as the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.